can stand before you. And we know that even as we stand before you today, that the only righteousness that we have is the righteousness given to us in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for your mercy and your grace that you extend to us. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to hear your word today, that you would help us to understand and know uh, the message you have for us. Guide us and help us to understand and hear it. And we ask you this for the sake of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's turn together in the scriptures to Psalm 40 as we continue there today. And we'll have about another week, maybe two, in this text. And then we will continue to move through some other teachings of the Old Testament as we piggyback to and fro into the writings of Paul to the elder Timothy. As way of reminder, we... um, I've been looking at this psalm in the sense of David's point of view. We understand that when we read the psalms, they're music. They are the music of the temple worship of the days of King David, for the most part. There are other psalms that he did not write. And David was not aware that God was supernaturally inspiring the ones who are these that were recorded here. These aren't all the songs that David wrote, but these are the ones that were recorded and kept and became what we know as Scripture. Because God, the Spirit, as David would pen these things and as these things were being sung, David was speaking out of his own experience. That's the whole idea of poetry. Poetry is, by definition, in a layman's way, the language of experience. So if I write a story about what I see, I'm writing about what I'm experiencing with my eyes. If I'm writing a story about what I am feeling, I'm writing about the experience of my emotions. And that is what poetry is. Even if it's not something I've experienced, if it's something that I long for, something that I desire, it's still the experience of of the writer. And so we need to understand that that is how David understood these psalms. And so that as Pastor Trey preached last week about the imprecatory prayers, or to put it simply, the prayers of God destroying somebody, uh, that we saw in David, while it is not the practice as prescribed in the Bible, it is the presence of the reality of our humanity. We are indeed people who feel this way. We can't hide that from God. I was praying yesterday and and pleading with the Lord about things and, and praying out loud. And it's funny because I found myself explaining to God why I was praying what I was praying. And see, if I'd pinned that down and 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 read it out, oh, that sounds like David. Of course it sounds like David. But the difference in my prayers and David's prayers is that God intended for these prayers that we have, for these songs that we have. To not only show us the, and reveal to us the reality of David's humanity that we may partner with and go, wow, I'm not alone in this. But it has a deeper significance. And that God the Spirit used these psalms to show us that Jesus Christ is truly in them. All of them. All of them. There is not one psalm that is not pointing to Christ. David did not know this. But what David did know is that God the Father was his hope. God the Father was his power. God the Father's promises. God the Father is the only one in whom 
he could trust. And so sometimes we, we gather together as the saints. We, we're looking for some stuff that we can just put in our little calendar or that we can put in our, our, our practical shoes in a spiritual sense and go, okay, I'm going to walk this way. I'm going to act this way. I'm going to live this way. And there's some of that instruction in the New Testament as it deals with us relating to one another and to the world. As we learn to try to understand that we know today in 2023 about our nervous system. You know, they didn't understand the nervous system in antiquity. They didn't understand emotions from the biological or the physiological point of view like we do today, but it was still the same. And when we look at the Bible and we start to see the practices of the saints, we start to see the instruction found in God's Word, we will begin to see that nothing has changed in the prescription of how to overcome life, how to overcome the world, how to overcome our fears how to overcome all the things that, that the world and everyone in it has always been struggling with since the very beginning of humanity. And so we're going to continue in that vein today. We're going to look at David and how he conceded to trust in the promise of God's deliverance. So we know that this psalm is talking about David being in despair, wanting deliverance, And how he waited for the Lord and he understood that waiting for the Lord is is an opportunity for us to do what? Sit and and be happy? No. For us to sit and fret. That's the point. I don't care how strong your faith is, when things are bad, we are not very secure in our spiritual walks. We're not. And to say that we are is really just posturing. It's pretending And it's okay to posture, it's okay to say things, but beloved, you need to understand that there is very little integrity in that when we're not being honest about our own fears. We're not hiding from God. And God isn't going, oh, poor James, he's just so chicken. He's not even brave enough to tell himself that he's chicken. Give an example. I am passive aggressive. Do you know what that means? And do you know, I've never saw myself like that. As a matter of fact, people have said that to me through the years. I went, you're crazy. But now that I know what it is, and now that I can look back and go, oh, yeah, that was there. It's not the mainstay of my existence, but I am. Just like a man told me one time when he was accused of being a liar. This man was in his late 60s, early 70s. He'd been in the pastorate for 50 years, 40 years, or somewhere like that. Maybe not 50, but... He'd been there a while. It was almost 50, so that would tell you where, where his age was. And he was saying that how sometime, one day somebody came to me and came, came to him and he called him in to the, to, the, to the Sunday school class or something right there and just looked at him and said, you're the biggest liar I've ever met. I can't stand you. And he goes, you know what? I thanked him for that. What? And he's telling me this over lunch. He said, yeah, because I had not lied to this person. And I had not lied consciously in any sense in the last years that I could think of. No evidence of me being a liar to this man was on the table. However, it wasn't a lie that I am a liar. So I didn't let it bother me. And then I worked out why he thought I had lied about. And then we came to understand that it was a misunderstanding. And we work through it. You see the difference? 
So as we're learning the scripture, beloved, it's, 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 it's the mantra that I've been pounding on my, the drum of my soul since I was a child. And I'm realizing that it's not about eliminating sorrow and stress, eliminating fear. It's about letting it do its due. Moving through every little season to see the outcome of God being strong and delivering us through it. Look at the Old Testament. From the creation account, to the fall, to the restoration, to all the promises, to Abraham and, all, and, and, and the nation of Israel in every few seasons. They were back in slavery. They were back in bondage. Why? Because God the Father said to them, I will bring your enemies as my rod of correction against you. David understood that. He understood that waiting for the Lord is a time of great turmoil. But the more we wait and the more we see the evidence of God being faithful, the easier it is to wait and the lighter the burden is in our suffering. It's not gone and it's still hard. But it does get better. And so today, I want to focus on verses 11 through 17. Psalm 40, verse 11. As for you, O Lord, and then in the next few weeks, I will show you the Christological prophecy of this text. So that I'm doing my just duty of why it's written for our benefit. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord! As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. You, O oh God, are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. So you see this cry. You see this cry. You see what David is saying here. Beloved, this can be the cry of our hearts. This should be the cry of our hearts. But we can't mimic it. We can't just say, okay, I'm going to take David's situation. I'm going to take David's words. I'm going to take David. We're not supposed to be David. We're not supposed to be like David. That's not the point of Scripture. The point of Scripture is to reveal things. And most importantly, and most specifically, the point of Scripture is to reveal God through things. To reveal God that's what it means to see God's glory. That means to see him for who he is. God's glory is not a thing that he has. It is him. It's glorious. And we as the beloved who are in Christ Jesus and who are standing before the Father of righteousness without condemnation, we are able to stand with the promise of knowing that we shall share in the glory of Christ. So as Christ is in all of his wonder and all of his marvel, we shall too be. It's a little odd to think 
But this promise of deliverance that we see in these latter portion of this text, and it can be broken down into smaller details. And I mean, we could, we could spend, you know, 30, 40 weeks in this text if we wanted to really get technical. But for the essence of the way scripture needs to be understood, we don't need to bog down so quickly by missing the points. We need to get to the points. And I have a real good habit, and I'm an absolute expert at missing the point and bogging down. Because it's what I do in life. Don't laugh at me. I see all y'all laughing. Everybody's laughing but one of you. You're like, yeah, I'm sick of it. You know, I can bog down because I get so excited and then the details get smaller and then the details get even more smaller and next thing I know I'm using like nano microscopes to look under microscopes. and Wow, and it's not the point of the Bible. It's not the point of the Bible to continue to run a theological train through the eye of a needle. Can we do that? Yes. But should we do that? Probably not. We can individually, we can in small pockets. But corporately, we need to see the text as it stands. We need to understand that God the Spirit is the one who is going to teach us and to affirm us and to grant us repentance, which means a change of disposition to rest. To rest in what the Bible is teaching us. So the overarching story and essence of this text is for us to see that David, in the midst of all of his trials, was able to trust in the deliverance that God had promised because he'd seen it time and time again. And even if he had not seen it, God would come through. I mean, we have platitudes like that today, don't we? God is good and all the time and all the time God is good. You know, these little things. We don't really know what they mean. We just say them in certain circles. Well, God's got you. I mean, how many of you have ever heard or said that? God's got you. Or God's got this. Or here's one that, I, that, that happens really often in the South. If God bring you to it, he'll bring you through it. You know, that kind of stuff. I don't want to go through it. That's the problem. Thank you for bringing me to the entrance of the death forest where the monsters eat my legs. No, thank you. God, I want to go around it. I want to go above it. That's the experiencing God idea. Let's just go above it. Let's look, God, let's look down and see God's perspective. I mean, it's not, it's not that bad of a, of a teaching. But these things in and of themselves are not necessarily doing the work that the Scripture promises it will do. And we can have all a pack full of arsenal of, of tools and platitudes and phrases and sayings and mantras and all these things and positive affirmations which are healthy and they're right, but they're not going to change us inside. They're not going to make us labor in resting. I bet I say the word rest and say the word joy more than any other word but maybe John. And I've realized that what even I teach through the Bible oftentimes feels like it doesn't even have power in my life. Are you able to say that? Are you able to confess that this morning? If you are, you're on your way of being healthy spiritually. But some people gasp at that idea so much so that they would suck my papers off the podium. <gasps> you know. Don't gasp at that idea. That is the reality. That is what the psalm can show us. And then the psalm can show us the perfection of Christ. That it wasn't about David at all. David experienced these things that God would have a picture in history of showing us Christ. 
and what Christ would experience and what Christ would go through and what Christ would do. No one has suffered the wrath of God like Christ. Well, there are people that are suffering the wrath of God. Not yet. But even if they do, it, it, it is something that is forever. It is something that is permanent. It is something that is not ending. And most importantly, it's something that's deserved. Christ did not deserve death. He took it. He laid down his, his life and he gave it up again of his own free will. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Look at that. I mean, that in verse 11 alone is, is worthy of the next 30 minutes of our time. Because this is the resolve of the believer. This is the work of God the Spirit in the life of His people to show us no matter what the world is showing us, no matter what things look like, no matter what relationships look like, no matter what finances look like, no matter what health looks like, no matter what our own brain looks like or our thoughts or emotions or feelings, this is the outcome that we're looking for. Not to say it, but to rest in it. So it's about resting. In it. In what? In the promises and the power of God. His promise of deliverance. Lord, you will not restrain your mercy. Your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace will ever sustain me because it is rooted in your love for me. You see, I say this often throughout the years that God has loved his people. He has loved, and I will say, I will use this personally, he has loved me before I was. Not just the concept of me, but personally me, individually me, specifically me. And for you who are in Christ, the same is true for you. He has loved you before you were. He has loved you before your generation was. He has loved you before the decades. He's loved you before the centuries. He's loved you before the millennia were. He's loved you before He said, let there be, and there was. And in that reality... The steadfast love of God has no beginning and it has no end. And so therefore everything that he purposes for our lives, that means what we're going through right now and the pain that we're going through or the joy that we're experiencing is indeed part of his love for us because we are his people. Wow. And that's why I stand here every single week. And that's why I labor hard. And when I say hard, I'm not mean dedicated, disciplined, and determined. I mean in much trial. For the Lord in His mercy and His faithfulness to establish me to stand here and share this journey with you so that your joy may be full as well. That's what I want from you. That's what I want for you, rather. And from you. I want to hear the praises of the faithfulness of God. I want you to... To, to, to tell of the steadfast love, as David said earlier in verse 10, to the congregation. I want, I want 1 Peter chapter 1 to be our song. The steadfast love of God is faithful. What is it that David is experiencing? We're not going to take a whole lot of time, but it's evil. It's his own sin. It's his own doubt. It's his own failings. It's his own non-resting. He's, he's laboring terribly 
over these issues psychologically and emotionally, and it's causing him strain in his body. It's causing him strain in his relationships. It's causing him strain in his rule. It's causing him strain in his kingdom. I mean, think about this. I mean, we have a lot of responsibility, and when we're not well, when we're not healthy, and when we're not spiritually sound, and when we're not doing that which God has called us to do and trusting in Him, it affects a lot of people around us. But imagine being the king or the queen of a nation, and your faith in the faithfulness of God, or the lack thereof, can change the entire world. <laughs> and we know the stories. We know what it did. And so we see the place where David is, is, is not blaming other people for his suffering. He is saying, listen, I'm the sinner here. I can't count them. You know, I've done that exercise several times in my life. Sit down and just really begin to pray about every wicked little thing or faithless thing that I can think of in my life, in my body, my mind, or my affections. And do you know that is not a good exercise? It feels like it's a good exercise. And after hours, if not days, of mulling through this stuff, you realize that this is an eternal exercise that has stopped at the cross of Christ. So I like David. I've got sins. They've overtaken me. And I cannot see because there are more sins than the hairs on my head. So I'm going to stop counting. Your grace is enough. Christ Jesus is enough. The death of Christ is enough. The resurrection of Christ is my power. I'm alive because he is alive. So then he goes in verse 13. He just jumps right in. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. This is not a command of God. This is the reality of the nature of God for those he loves. He is in the business of deliverance. Now we don't use that word much. Deliverance here or delivery in our culture is like receiving a package in the mail. Or getting the order of food. But in the context here, what it really means is to be taken out and rescued. Rescued from the trial. Rescued from the pain. Rescued from the suffering. Rescued from the mire. Rescued from what? The pit. Verse 2 of this text. He heard my cry as I waited patiently for the Lord. And remember we talked about that five weeks ago. About what patient waiting is. It's agony. It's not, oh yeah, everything's going to be fine. No, it's agony. He inclined. God leaned down to see on me and heard my cry. I didn't have to get his attention. He was already inclined. He was already pointing to me. So here, David is not wrong by saying it pleases the Lord to lend his mercy and his love toward me because that is the disposition of who God is in the revelation of the scripture that we have in, before us. So because of that, he can say, make haste to help me. Here I am. Lord, it pleases you to help me. Help me. Help me quickly. I mean, do you, do you and I pray patiently? Remember the old the joke, don't pray for patience. I mean, how do we have patience? By being in the middle of a God-forsaken mess. That's how. By having to wait. By feeling the stress, the, 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 the pull, the tension of what we want and need and must have versus where we are in the time between those two things. That's patience. Help me. 
And because of the suffering that David was experiencing, let those be put to shame who disappoint altogether, who seek to snatch away my life. There were people trying to kill him. There were people trying to ruin him. Maybe that's true for you. It's been true for me. It's been true for me in a great way in the last three or four years. What a baby. David was a baby. I'm a baby. You're a baby. We're all babies. We're God's babies. <laughs> we need Him. Bring them to dishonor, who delight in my heart. Hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame. They got me. Aha, aha, look at you suffering. See, that's what they were doing. They were mocking David. Look at you. The man after God's own heart. We've heard that song too many times. The number one hit. Top ten of Israel. Kingdom records. <laughs> We've heard that song. Look at you now, God's boy. Look at you now, king. You're wallowing in your own pity. Yep. But look at his last stanzas. And then we're, gonna, then we're going to deal with this with a bunch of cross-references, with a bunch of proof texts, and with the reality of what Christ has done to make us more than conquerors. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. This is a difficult thing to do in the midst of pain. I use this example a lot because back in the day, you know, when music was getting, when Christian music was extremely, you know, for the first time ever, didn't sound hokey. You know what I'm talking about? And the younger generation, like, hey, I can groove with this. This is good. This is Jesus music. Are you sure? And, the, you know, the older people are like, we're going to burn the whole building down in, sac in sanctification. Uh, you know, this is sacrilegious. Either way. There was a song, and I don't even know who sang it, and they might, not even, they might even be heretics. It doesn't matter. It's an example, okay? Relax. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away. You know, blessed be the, and that's an exciting song, right? You know, you've heard me say this. But it comes from the book of Job. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord is what Job says. And the context of that is when he receives the news from his servant that his house just fell in and killed all of his children at once. So it sort of makes us want to put away the tambourine, right? Oh, I was excited about blesses the name of the Lord. And I, sorry, Job, I didn't realize that was the context. Funeral dirge would be a little bit better. But it's not bad. Because I think that our soul can sing and rejoice and be glad in you and say great is the Lord in the midst of all these trials. And beloved, I'm here to tell you right now, I'm here to tell you right now, as a culture and as a church, we have seen nothing yet. As believers who want to be true to the word of God, we've not yet been confronted with things that the mainstay American church 
would push away from us for. Sure, we got doctrinal differences. Sure, we got preacher don't wear a suit. Uh, sure, you know, things like that. I mean, these are silly, trivial things to a degree. But when we get down to living a loving lifestyle and begin to actually care about those people around us, even those people who seek to hurt us, we are going to be maligned. And we have to remember, verse 17, we are poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. He is my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. And we can say, great is the Lord. There's a passage in John's gospel. See? John 16, I think. I know the text. I'm just not sure if I'm in the right verse. 33, maybe? Yeah. Verse 29 of John 16. Oh, now you're speaking plainly. You're not using figurative language. Now we know that you know everything. And that no one needs to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them. Do you now believe? I hate this. Because I stand in there and I stand as like a fly on the wall in that circle. And I'm going, no. Because we know. You know, Thomas is in that number. You know, Peter's in that number. And what's about to happen with both of them, you know? I mean, the only disciple at the crucifixion was John. And Jesus says, do you really now believe? Do you now believe? Behold, a time is coming, the hour is coming. No, indeed, it has already come when you will be scattered to his own home and you will leave me alone you will abandon me you will reject me you will deny me you will refuse me your faith will be gone and even though I will be abandoned and hated and rejected and unloved I'm not alone, Jesus says. For the Father is with me. You see how Psalm 40 now is speaking of Jesus? This little preview. I have said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. (laughs) They were at the beginning of this introduction to this incredibly terrible place. And Jesus told them that, right? You're about to be scattered. I'm about to be alone. You're about to abandon me. Not I! Slash, you know, Peter's zeal and all this other stuff. Let's go die with him, says Thomas. They wanted a hero. They were looking for a nationalistic head to undergird their spiritual affections. And what they got was a a king 
who serve best by being quiet and dying. And he tells them of this trial, and he says, But I say this, that you may have peace in me. In the world, you will not have peace. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You see how easy it is to get platitudes? We've learned already that God's deliverance and His ability to be faithful and our ability to rest in His sovereignty is something that we're going to experience. God's power and purpose, God will deliver us. Psalm 18, David says, God is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And David knew this from the beginning, right? David understood this when he went out on the battlefield and the Philistine army was there and this big giant beast of a man, this 400-some pound man, standing there at eight feet tall whose hands were the size of my chest you know that kind of stuff mocking God and David this tiny little runt of a nothing is just like are you going to do something about this? he never he was just stupid faithful right? he wasn't wise I wasn't wise but that's God's work It's not David's work. That's God's power and purpose. It's been in the life. It's in our lives right now. You've also looked over the last few weeks about God's promises. He will never forsake his people. Deuteronomy 31.6 is quoted by Paul in the writing of Hebrews to the Hebrews in chapter 13. Verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said... I will never leave you, never will I forsake you. In Deuteronomy, that allusion there is, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, when do we see that in the life of the Israelites? Throughout the entirety of their existence, throughout the entirety of the Exodus, through mighty power and the promise of God to bring them through the blood of the Lamb, the Passover. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of the ability of humanity. When we become independent in our lives and think that we are standing strong is when we are the weakest, when we are the most isolated, and when we are the most spiritually inept. But even then, God is faithful. At the same time, we have great responsibility to do and to be that which God has called us to be. And ultimately, as we've seen here in this text, God is pleased to deliver His people through the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as He says in John 16, as we've seen, is the one who has overcome the world. In 1 John, John writes his letter there in chapter 4, verse 4, talks about the spirit of Christ overcoming the spirit of the world, the spirit of not Christ. 
He even says it this way, You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Who? Your enemies. Because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We saw last week at the resurrection, we, we looked at not Matthew's account, but John's account, looking at Mary Magdalene. But in Matthew 28, 6, I mean, in other places in the synoptics, we see that people are looking for Jesus and we know that what? He was not there. Just as he said he wouldn't be. Come and see. So in conclusion, what is it? Paul puts it, Romans 8 is probably like the greatest meal we could eat every day. If you're struggling to be in the scripture, that's okay. If you're feeling distant, that's okay. If you're feeling overwhelmed with everything and and the last thing you want is to be bothered with the guilt or shame of not being spiritually focused right now, that's okay. Because Christ is victorious and therefore we have, according to the teaching of scripture, we are more than conquerors in our weakness in our failures, in our sin, because Christ is the victor. Paul didn't write Philippians 4.13. He didn't write that. He didn't write the words that we call Philippians 4.13 for nothing. I've had good times and I've had lean times. I've had success and I've had failure. I've been hungry and I've had plenty to eat. I've been rich and I've been poor. I've been free and I've been imprisoned. And quite honestly, I... Rather be poor and hungry and imprisoned. Because when I'm at the weakest, he is the strongest. And I know that I can endure all things in Christ who is my strength and thus strengthens me. And so Christ tells us that we are victorious over the world. I wrote these things out. There are about 30 of them. I'll pull them together in about six themes. We have overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world. What exactly does that mean? You live in the world. You know what the world offers? You know what the world gave you this morning when you got up to get ready for church? I mean, the world includes the flat tire, the broken toilet, the achy foot, the ringing ears, the annoying dog, the nosy neighbor, the feelings inside that you really don't want to tell anybody about, and everything else in this world that's dying and passing away. You know, nothing that we create, nothing that we accomplish in this world will ever last. There'll be no annals of history. There'll be no architectural designs. There'll be no paintings and music and writings for us to stand up there and pile next to the Christ and go, wow, look at all the cool stuff that we did. That's nothing but the Tower of Babel in the presence of true glory. And that makes me angry sometimes because I'm a creative person. (laughs) But nobody wants to look at what I've brought. I don't want my trash standing between me and the most perfect glory. You see? Be honest. 
It can frustrate us sometimes. We have an enemy. But the Bible says that we, through Christ, have overcome the enemy. What enemy? All enemies. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them in the cross. That's a paraphrase. We have overcome temptation. Hebrews 4, talking about the discipline of the Lord, the correction of the Lord. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us and our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way that we have been tempted. Listen to me. Every temptation, yet sins not. We have overcome fear. We've overcome fear. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death we might, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the enemy, the devil, the adversary. And free those who all their lives who, held, who, who were held in slavery by the fear of death. And if we don't have the fear of death, what do we fear otherwise? If we go to John chapter 1 and, and we see the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, we, we have nothing to fear we don't have to fear knowing all the right stuff and being all the right things. We don't have to fear that. Even Christ learned obedience from what he suffered and was made perfect, it says. He became the source of eternal salvation for all of his people. We have overcome in Christ sorrow and grief. The prophet Isaiah writes of Christ, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people would hide their faces. He was despised. And we held Him in low esteem. Surely He took our pain and bore our suffering and took our iniquities, yet we considered Him accursed by God, stricken and afflicted. We have overcome the curse of the law. Paul writes to the churches of Galatia and he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Cursed is all who have been hanged on a tree. We have overcome the powers of darkness. We see Dr. Luke writing the accounts of the, of the apostles in Acts 26 that this gospel, this Christ, was sent into the world to open the eyes of and turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith. The fear of death, the power of death, the sting of death, the power of the grave, the penalty of sin, the power of sin. All these phrases are found all the way through Scripture. Paul even says we no longer are mastered by sin. We no longer are slaves to sin because we're not under the law, but we're under grace. So when we do sin, what is it that we are looking for? Condemnation? Absolutely not. There is no condemnation. What are we to do? Hebrews 12, 1. Fixing our eyes on Christ, the one that went before us, the perfecter, the founder of our faith. For the joy set before him, he, what? Endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then did what? sat down at the right hand of the Father. See, Christ finished the work. 
The world is going to reject us. This life that we live is going to reject all of our senses and all of our faculties, and it's going to reject everything. Ourselves are going to reject ourselves. And it's not always just about things happening to us. It's things that we're experiencing. It's things that are going to happen naturally. God has a purpose in it. God has a purpose in it. We are poor and we are needy. And Christ has overcome the world. And that's why it's so important, beloved, for us to remember. When the scripture says that we are not of the world, it does not lie. We are in it. We are birthed into it, just like Christ was birthed into it. Just like he was not of the world, but came into the world to bring his people out of the world, who were in the world. This is the love of God for us. This is the mercy and the grace and the power of God for us. And I want so bad right now to close this entire service with this amazing soliloquy of some kind that will impact you in your minds and will bring your heart along uh, to, to, to a place of emotional response. And you're like, wow, I see, I feel, I know, I experience the grace of God. But what good would it do for my poetry To have an effect on you. If the plain <laughs> and simple and beautiful truth of Christ won't do it. If it won't do it. And if it's not doing it for you right now, it's okay too. Beloved, we live in a shame culture. And there are some things that should cause us shame. But they're not the things that we typically fight over in ourselves. Especially the so-called church of America. Well, I didn't get to church on time. Shame. I didn't wear the right clothes. Shame. I drank wine. Shame. I didn't drink wine. Shame. I dressed up too nice. Shame. I didn't dress up enough. Shame. I watched a Marvel movie, shame. I watched a Jesus movie, shame. Second commandment violation. <laughs> I used the KJV, shame. I used the new KJV, cursed. I used the ESV, shame. You can't win. You can't win with, with this ideology. You can't win You'll never be what anybody else wants you to be. But you are already what God has declared you to be. And the people who hate that word right there, most of the time, profess to be in Christ. Oh, that sounds like some easy believism. That sounds like this, that, and the other. That sounds like popcorn Christianity. I don't care what it sounds like. What other people think I'm saying is none of my business anymore. I don't care. And I really am not saying that from a place of apathy. I'm saying that from a place of security. And what I want for us as a congregation, as a spiritual family, is to be in unity on these things and be in unity as we work through them together. We are not all going to come on the same 
place at the same time. But beloved, we are in covenant. And if the gospel of grace and the picture of marriage is a picture of the gospel of grace, it's for good and for worse. And I think the church ought to take note in that too. For good or for worse. For better or for worse. We work through it to be closer on the other side of it. When you feel, when you feel like your spiritual life is waning, remember, There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done, listen to the word of the Lord today. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Let me stop right there. And that's my closing thought and the point of this whole thing. We are where our minds are. I'm going to say that again. We are where our minds are. And that's in presence and purpose and everything else. We are where our minds are. And our minds need to be not in the flesh, not laboring over the flesh, Not laboring how to put to death the flesh. But on the presence and the promises of the power of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And if you can't do anything else in your spiritual life right now because of where you are. Just remember that. Remember verse 1 of Romans 8. We are not condemned. And just take a deep breath and continue to work. And one day, and hopefully soon, God will, con- will give you a reprieve. And you will rest. And you will be able to say what Paul says in verse 18 of that wonderful chapter of Romans 8. For I consider these sufferings in the present time not worth comparing to that glory which is to be revealed to us. For the creation wakes with either eager longing of the revealing of the sons of God For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Beloved, we can wait with patience on what we do not see. And that's in everything in life. Now and the life hereafter. We can wait with patience because God's promises will prevail. He will deliver us from these present darknesses. He will deliver us from these stresses. He will deliver us because He's promised to do so. Rest in that. Let's pray. We thank You, Father, for the glory of Your Word, for the beauty of it all. And Father, I pray that in my own mind right now that You would 
begin to wipe away even some of the some of the things that give me reservation. Some of the ways in which I, I think too deeply about how things may seem. Lord, the judgment that we put on ourselves about things that we are working on and trying and the judgment we put on each other sometimes because we don't see others look like we think they should. We thank you for the Psalms. We thank you for the humanity of the Psalms. We thank you, Father, that we can see that there are real people just like us that you carried through hard times. And they and their lives and their significance is ceased. And we thank you for the Psalms and their eternal point. Pointing to Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you for the Psalms that show us that there is an eternality to our presence and being. And that is, we share in the glory of Christ. That everything that we experience is an opportunity for praise, an opportunity for your power to be manifested in our lives, and Father, an opportunity for us to know that everything about us as believers points to your promises as your children. And so we thank you for it. As we take the table today to remember the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus, let us be mindful of one another, to love each other, to seek the good from each other, to look through the lens of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And Father, to also look through the lens of grace and mercy and forgiveness to ourselves. To see ourselves as your righteousness. Because that's what you've promised us in Christ. And you've made it so. Help us to be at peace. In his name we pray. Amen. Come and eat church.